Hello and welcome to All Things Plantagenet. My name is Donnie Hazel and I am your host. To all my original listeners, welcome back. To all my new listeners, welcome. If you enjoy the podcast and wish to support this show, you can help support it by clicking on the support link in the description of any episode. I have also created a website, www.allthingsplantagenet.com where you can find additional information and resources, as well as the episodes for this podcast. There is also a link on the website to the Facebook page for All Things Plantagenet. Okay, so now on to the show. Section 1 of Edward I. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Pamela Nagami. Edward I by Thomas Frederick Tout. Chapter 1. Early Years, 1239-1258, to Part 1. Edward I was born at Westminster on the 17th of June, 1239. He was the first offspring of the marriage of Henry III with Eleanor of Provence. Henry had long held in special reverence King Edward the Confessor, whose pious, weak, but amiable character in some ways is suggestive of his own. He therefore at once bade the child be called Edward, in memory of the holy king whose ashes reposed in the neighboring abbey of St. Peter's. A papal legate performed the baptismal ceremony, and among the sponsors was the great Simon of Montfort, Earl of Leicester, newly reconciled to his royal brother-in-law after his audacious marriage with the widowed Countess Eleanor of Pembroke, King Henry's sister. Exceptional rejoicings attended the birth of the heir to the crown, for many feared that the young queen was barren, and all were glad that a man-child born on English soil and bearing an English name had come into the world to settle the question of the succession to the throne. Significantly, passing over the long line of foreign rulers who had borne sway in England since the Norman conquest, an English chronicler gleefully traced back young Edward's genealogy to Alfred, the greatest of the old English kings. The laws of the good King Edward, after whom the child had been named, had been the rallying cry of more than one generation of oppressed and downtrodden Englishmen. It was hoped that a new King Edward might renew the golden age of the Holy Confessor. Groaning under weak and irresolute rule, wounded in all their dearest national aspirations, Englishmen looked forward from the dull present to the possibilities of a happier and brighter future. Nor were such hopes doomed to the disappointment which so commonly awaits those who reckon upon the goodwill of princes. The son of the weak Henry and the greedy and unpopular Eleanor was destined to become the greatest of English monarchs. Henry III, in many ways, reminds us of Charles I. 
there is in both kings the same strict religious principle, the same high standard of private life, the same strong and pure domestic affections, the same intelligent artistic temperament, the same graciousness, refinement, and love of culture. But a complete paralysis of will, an utter absence of straightforwardness, manliness, resolution, and clearness of vision, made Henry even more unfitted than Charles to act as ruler of England. Like Charles, Henry could never see that the times were changing. He held ideas of his own rights, that the sons of the men who had wrested the great charter from King John could never allow to pass unquestioned. But it was not the policy so much as the want of policy of Henry that gave his subjects most offence. Thirteenth-century England had no objection to a strong king, who clearly grasping the identity of interest between himself and his people, strove with might and main to grapple with anarchy and lawlessness and drive the people into the ways of sound rule and good order. Henry III was too feeble, too frivolous, too idle to be such a king. Moreover, he was jealous and suspicious of all able men. He was afraid to allow his ministers to exercise the powers that he was too weak to use himself. He strove to rule personally through clerks, dependents, and foreign favorites. The result was an almost complete collapse of all sound rule, while the material and spiritual activities of the nation were alike rapidly expanding, the strong centralized government which Henry II had handed down to his sons was smitten with palsy. The begging friars were working out a great religious revival. The young enthusiasm of the Oxford masters had made England the home of an intellectual activity that could only be paralleled in the great University of Paris. Roger Bacon was preparing the way for English medicine and science. Vast and noble minsters in the new pointed style were arising throughout the land and proclaiming the culmination of medieval art. The English tongue was again becoming a vehicle for original literature, while in the learned Latin and the noble French a vigorous and abundant crop of great works were written by Englishmen. Englishmen were again conscious of national life and national unity. But with the weak Henry on the throne, political progress that should match the rapid movement of the greatest and most constructive period of the Middle Ages could only be obtained through revolution. Henry III was himself in full sympathy with at least the religious and artistic movements of his time. His love of English saints, his anxiety to uphold English power abroad, shows that he was no mere foreigner, as has so often been said. But his wife and his mother, a Provençal and a Poitevin, exercised an unhappy influence upon him. The Provençal and Savoyard uncles of his wife, his Poitevin half-brothers by his mother's second marriage, claimed the chief places in his court and councils, and aspired to the greatest offices, estates, and dignities in the land. 
Henry's superstitious fear of papal authority, combined with a shrewd sense of the temporal benefits to be got from close friendship with the spiritual head of the church, exposed England to the invasion of a swarm of greedy foreign ecclesiastics. The very good points of Henry told against his popularity as a king. His appreciation of the great position of the Roman Church, his sympathy for the great wave of religion and culture which radiated from the France of Saint-Louis and exercised an influence over Western Europe only second to that exercised by the France of Rousseau and Voltaire, led Henry to a love of foreign manners and methods that became increasingly repugnant to his nobles. The barons of England might talk French at home and vie with Henry in their love of French ways, but French-speaking Englishmen of the 13th century were no more good Frenchmen in the political sense than the French-speaking Vaudois or Genevese of today. Since the loss of Normandy under John, most of the English barons had become sound English patriots and enemies of French political influence, however fully they shared in the international civilization of the French-speaking world. Queen Eleanor of Provence exercised over Henry III the same fatal influence that Henrietta Maria wielded over Charles I. She was indeed a stronger and less frivolous character than her antitype. She inherited the subtle will and the bright poetic nature of her father, Raymond Berenger IV, the last Count of Provence of the native line, and himself not the meanest of the poets in the soft and melodious Provençal tongue. From her mother, Beatrice of Savoy, came the harder, clearer, more grasping temperament, which was already a characteristic of the rising house of Savoy. She was one of the four fair sisters who all in their turn became queens. Quattro figlie ebbe, e ciascuna regina, Ramondo Berengieri. Eleanor's eldest sister Margaret was the wife of Louis the Ninth, better known as Saint Louis, then at the height of his power, and the strongest king who had ever as yet reigned in France. Her next sister, Sancha, married Henry the Third's only brother, Earl Richard of Cornwall, while her youngest sister took the rich inheritance of Provence to her husband, Charles of Anjou, the brother of Louis the Ninth and the future conqueror of Sicily. But despite her French connections by marriage, Eleanor cannot herself be described as French in any strict sense of the word. Her family had long headed the unavailing struggle against the extension of North French influence into Languedoc and Provence. But a foreign girl from the South, who never understood the ways and manners of Englishmen, and was, moreover, proud, greedy, extravagant, and overbearing, could not but exercise an evil influence over her weak, irresolute, and uxorious husband. With all their faults, Henry and Eleanor were devoted to each other and set an example of family life that was rare in those days of brutality and violence. They showed no less devotion to their children 
and all through his life Edward was bound by the strongest ties of duty and affection to his kindly, affectionate, and loving father and his proud, high-spirited, and passionate mother. Henry and Eleanor kept their son more about them than was usual in the formal households of the time. Up to the age of seven, Edward was mainly brought up at Windsor under the care of Hugh Giffard. He seems to have been delicate and to have suffered from severe illnesses. When he was seven, he fell sick at Beaulieu Abbey, whither he had been taken by his mother to be present at the dedication of the church. For three weeks he lay in danger, and his mother, to the scandal of the strict Cistercians, insisted on staying in the convent that she might nurse him. A year later, Edward was dangerously ill in London, and at the king's request, prayers were offered up for his recovery in all the monasteries in and near the city. But as he grew older, Edward got over his childish weakness. He became a tall, active, handsome boy, with bright flaxen locks and proud, rather domineering manners. Nor was his education neglected. French, Latin, and English he could understand with equal facility, and despite a stammer, he became ultimately an eloquent speaker in at least French and English. There is little evidence of his literary attainments and scanty proof of any love of books. Probably he was all through his life fonder of action than of speculation but he certainly must have gone through that elaborate drilling in the routine of business which he afterwards strove in vain to enforce on his unhappy son. We are still more certain that he went through a careful legal training, perhaps under the guidance of the chancery clerk, Robert Burnell, who became his chaplain and confidential servant, and to whom he was ever warmly attached. His father's real religious feeling ensured for Edward a strict religious education. The home lessons of purity and piety took a deep root, and all through his life Edward was honorably distinguished by the uprightness of his private life and the strength and fervor of his religious principles. Nor were the martial exercises which became a prince neglected, from an early age, Edward became famous throughout Christendom as the bravest and most dexterous of warriors. He gained many notable successes in tournaments against some of the doughtiest champions of the day. He was equally expert in hawking and hunting, a fearless and dexterous horseman, and a proficient in all martial and manly sports especially those that had in them a spice of danger. Among his most ordinary companions were his cousin, Henry of Almain, the son of Richard, Earl of Cornwall, who was soon to become the titular king of the Romans, and his other cousins, the four young Montfort, of whom the eldest, Henry de Montfort, was nearly his own age. The Montfort were fierce, violent, brutal youths, and marked out for stormy and ill-fated careers. Not less violent were Edward's young Poitevin uncles, the Lusignans, 
the offspring of his father's mother, Isabella of Angoulême, by her second marriage with the Count of La Marche, and who came, like the Savoyard kinsman of Henry's wife, to share the bounty of their half-brother the king. Edward himself was not unmarked by the same taint in early manhood. After he had been given a household of his own, the violence and brutality of his followers involved their master in an unpopularity which was not quite undeserved. With lordly good nature, Edward bestowed his confidence on ruffianly officials who oppressed and robbed his tenants in his name. Nor were his own acts blameless. Strange tales were told of the lawless deeds wrought by the heir to the throne out of mere love of mischief or wanton cruelty. The progresses of Lord Edward with his band of two hundred horsemen, mostly foreigners, were like the movements of a desolating plague. Not even Louis of France, the invader of England in King Henry's youth, had taken about with him such a band of ruffians and desperadoes. No common man had any rights that such high-spirited gentlemen could regard as sacred. They stole the horses, the wagons, and the provisions that came nearest to their hands. Even monks were spoiled and maltreated by these reckless youths. One day, when Edward paid a visit to his uncle Richard at Wallingford, his followers took violent possession of the neighboring priory, and driving out and insulting the lawful owners, stole their food, destroyed their property, and beat their servants. On another occasion, Edward was passing along a road, and out of mere wantonness, ordered his followers to cut off an ear and pluck out an eye of a harmless youth who had happened to cross his path. The most gloomy forebodings were expressed as to what would happen under so headstrong and reckless a ruler. But if courtly complacency is wont to magnify the virtues of young princes, common gossip is at least as apt to exaggerate their vices. Regard for human suffering was a very rare quality in the Middle Ages, at least outside church and cloister. Yet it is hard to believe that Edward was guilty of anything worse than youthful carelessness and overweening pride in his exalted position. Badly served, he may well have been, and all through his life it was among his chiefest misfortunes that the execution of his plans had to be confided to agents quite unworthy to give proper effect to them. But with all his love of joustings and hunting, events show that he seldom neglected his serious business. Men lived short lives in the Middle Ages and correspondingly began their active career at an exceedingly early age. The medieval prince or noble was often a warrior, a practiced statesman, a husband and a father when still little more than a mere boy. This was the case with Edward, he was only eight when his father began to think of providing him with a wife. But the negotiations entered upon in 1247 for a marriage between the young Edward and the daughter of the Duke of Brabant led to no result. 
when Edward was about thirteen, fresh marriage negotiations were begun with Alfonso X, King of Castile. This prince was a descendant of Eleanor, daughter of Henry II, from whose marriage with King Alfonso VIII of Castile had resulted a long and intimate connection between England and Castile, which colored the whole of our foreign policy up to the Reformation. But marriage connections involved not only relations of kinship, but unpleasant claims of right. Alfonso X was the most powerful of the Spanish kings, an able, vigorous, active, and aggressive ruler. The compilation of the Code of the Siete Partidas made his reign an epic in the history of Castile, while his adventurous disposition led him later to accept the doubtful advantage of election to the Holy Roman Empire in rivalry to Edward's uncle, Earl Richard of Cornwall. The same restless and aggressive spirit Alfonso now showed by entertaining the appeals of the rebellious Gascon subjects of the English king, who called upon him to vindicate his claims to the duchy as the heir of Eleanor of Guienne. It was even believed in England that Alfonso proposed to invade England with an army of Castilians and Saracens. Henry thought it wise to remove the possibilities of a conflict and restore the old friendly relations with Castile by a proposal to marry Edward to Alfonso's half-sister Eleanor, the daughter of King Ferdinand the Saint, by his second wife, Joan of Ponthieu, a young girl already reputed to possess great beauty, goodness, and sound sense, and who was, moreover, in right of her mother, heiress of the rich counties of Ponthieu and Montreuil in western Picardy. That Edward himself might not go landless to the marriage, Henry conferred upon his son such extensive territories that he became, men said, no better than a mutilated king. In 1253, Henry sailed to Gascony, hoping to appease some disturbances that were then raging there and conclude the match. Edward, who was taken to Portsmouth to see his father depart, stood weeping upon the shore as the ship sailed away and would not leave it as long as a sail could still be seen. Queen Eleanor remained in England to look after her son in the realm. The next year, the marriage treaty was signed, and in the early summer of 1254, Edward sailed with his mother and his uncle, Archbishop Boniface of Canterbury, to join his father in Gascony. In August, he went to Alfonso's court at Burgos to carry on his suit in person. His mother still accompanied him. Alfonso received him with great pomp and festivity, examined the youth in his skill and knowledge, and conferred upon him the honor of knighthood. In October, he was married to Eleanor at the monastery of Las Huelgas, and shortly afterwards returned with his wife to Bordeaux, whence, a year later, they returned to England. The marriage thus concluded between the royal children proved one of the happiest in English history. Edward and Eleanor rivaled Henry and Eleanor in the warmth of their attachment and the purity of their domestic lives. 
they were scarcely ever separated, Eleanor making it her pride to share in the toils and dangers of her husband. On her death, after thirty-five years of happy wedlock, Edward experienced the most poignant grief. His whole character changed for the worse after the removal of the faithful partner of his youth and early manhood. In the thirteenth century, a king's son did not form a member of a special royal caste. He had no distinctive title and was brought up very much like any other young man of high birth. The old English word atheling had ceased to be used as the appropriate designation of the son of a crowned and anointed king. The vaguer modern word prince did not come into use for many centuries later. The eldest son of the English king had no higher title than the vague appellation of Lord, which he shared with a whole host of feudal chieftains, great and small, with the bishops, abbots, judges, and even the masters and doctors of the universities. To speak of our hero as Prince Edward is an anachronism, though sometimes it is a convenient one. Contemporaries were content to call him the Lord Edward, the firstborn son of the king, or more shortly, the Lord Edward. It is best to imitate their example. The provision for a medieval king's son was not made by grants and pensions from a civil list, but by the conference of large estates and territories which he was expected to manage as a landlord, if not also to rule as a feudal chieftain. It was only through the successful administration of his domains that he could expect to get an adequate income for himself. The privilege of receiving the revenue of his appanage thus involved the duty of hard work in its government. It was, moreover, a very common practice all over Europe to confer upon the youthful heir some outlying and semi-independent portion of the royal dominions that was not strictly a part of the main kingdom and which gave the young prince a wide and free field to learn how to govern and to prepare himself for the larger task of ruling the kingdom itself. A familiar, though later, example is the grant to the French king's heirs of the outlying district of Dauphiny, whence their well-known title of Dauphin. In the next century it became the custom in England to confer on the king's eldest son the Principality of Wales, but long before this had grown into a regular fashion, long before the principality was in the king's hand to bestow, a similar practice had arisen. The lavish grants of territories made, as we have seen, to Edward between 1252 and 1254 had not simply the object of providing him with an adequate revenue to keep his court in due state with his young wife. They were also made with the design of giving him experience as a ruler in those districts of his father's dominions where the most valuable experience could be got. The ample provision made for Edward included indeed certain English cities such as Bristol, Stamford, and Grantham, but these were but an insignificant portion of the whole. The real importance of the grants lies in the gift to Edward of all Ireland the earldom of Chester, the king's lands in Wales, the islands of Jersey and Guernsey with their dependencies, and the whole of Gascony 
with the island of Oleron, and whatever rights the king still had over all the other lands taken from his predecessors by the kings of France. It was, in short, the transference from Henry to Edward of all those parts of the British Isles outside England itself where the English king had any claim to rule. Along with these outlying dependencies went every vestige that remained of the Norman inheritance of William the Bastard and the Aquitanian inheritance of Eleanor of Guienne. Edward was thus made the representative of the claims still brought forward from time to time for the restitution of the great Angevin empire reduced to insignificance by the heedless folly of John and the watchful aggressions of the French kings. The results of both series of grants were of unspeakable importance for the future history of Edward and indeed for the future destinies of the British islands. It was perhaps the greatest work of Edward's life to revive and extend the policy of the great West Saxon kings before the conquest of reducing the whole British islands under the rule of the English king. The firmness and clearness with which Edward persisted in this policy may in no small measure be attributed to his early experience as ruler of Wales, Chester, and Ireland. Hardly second in importance to the imperial schemes of Edward in Britain was the firm policy with which he upheld England in a foremost place in the councils of Europe. This, again, can be traced back to his early experiences as a ruler of the English king's dominions in France. That he thought the real acquisition of Wales, Scotland, and Ireland more important and more worthy objects than vain attempts to renew the Angevin Empire on the continent is perhaps almost equally true of his later policy. His early Gascon training gave him opportunities for reforming the institutions and developing the resources of his great feudal duchy, while it could not but convince him of the real limitations imposed upon his power in the south of France. End of section 1Thank you for listening to this episode of All Things Plantagenet. Remember, we also have a website, www.allthingsplantagenet.com, where you can find additional information and resources, as well as the other episodes. Thank you for listening, and have a great day.